Ephesians 5:27 tells us that Christ desires his bride, the church, to be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. He desires that his church be a beautifully adorned bride, a precious gift set apart for himself alone. And that's why we've been spending time these last few weeks, particularly in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, which says, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and joined together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Here Paul says, the body causes the growth of the body as each member of the body is working properly within the body. As each one of us are, as individuals, functioning to the capacity to which God has designed us. And that proper working comes about, right, when we minister to one another, as we've talked about. When we do the work of service, when we exercise our gifts, when we apply to one another's, as we make disciples, and all these things are what makes the bride more beautiful, what purifies her, what makes her worthy of the groom, what makes her worthy of the sacrifice that the groom paid on our behalf. But we can't be naive about the dangers that exist for the church. There are many threats toward her. For all is not nice and beautiful in the world, is it? There are enemies to the church. There are those who would oppose a beautiful bride. Those who would want to nothing more than to desecrate her, to mar her beauty, to make her revolting and hideous before Christ. We know one of those enemies, Ephesians 6, Paul talks about him. Our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood. But against whom? Satan and his demons. Spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. And though he is a great adversary, though he is a powerful enemy, he is not the most dangerous one. There's even one that is more insidious, more crafty, more deceitful than the evil one. And that enemy is not from outside the church. That enemy is actually within the church. This enemy can infiltrate deep into the body and bring even greater damage. This enemy is our sin. Sin is the mighty adversary that has leveled many a church. And if we would see ourselves to be a beautiful bride for Christ, if we would see ourselves be a, one that honors Him, one that brings Him glory, if we would see ourselves grow into a mature body that looks more and more like Jesus Christ, then we must deal with sin, our sin, and treat it as the great enemy that it is. And give it no quarter here. And that goes for each and every one of us here in this room, every individual, we must deal with our sin. Because sin is like a, a disease which can start from one cell. All it takes is one person here, an ongoing, unrepentant sin, to cause a disease which will spread to the whole body. And as it's with any good designer, God, who has designed this church, has designed it with a mechanism to protect against this enemy. He's designed it in such a way that the body, the members of the body themselves are that mechanism. Because properly working parts are accountable to one another to help one another deal with sin. 
But this life-on-life accountability is challenged in our day. There are people that say, hey, don't meddle in my personal affairs. It's none of your business. Don't judge me. You have no right to violate my privacy. I don't have to tell you anything about what's going on with me personally, especially any sins in my life. But the Bible declares just the opposite. We all have a responsibility to help come alongside one another in our struggles with sin. In James 5.16, James says to confess our sins. And there he doesn't say to the Father. He says to one another. Now, of course, that doesn't mean, you know, that you come up, grab the microphone every Sunday. I'm going to tell everybody what's going on in my life. But there at least should be some in your life that you have an open and transparent relationship with that you can sit down and share one another's struggles with to be confessing those sins to one another. Let me read you some familiar passages. I think many of these will be familiar to you regarding our responsibility to one another in this area of helping one another in our struggle with sin. You know Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, lest any of you, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Such an important passage. Encourage means to come alongside one another at times to rebuke and admonish and at other times to give encouragement. We're to come alongside each other daily, it says, day after day. And why is that? Why is that? Because if we're left with ourselves, to ourselves, to deal with our sin on our own, you know what? We're in trouble. Because the writer of Hebrews says there, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, sin is self-protective. Sin puts up the wall and the veneer and doesn't want to be known and made known and dealt with. And sin can harden our own heart from either seeing it or perceiving it. It is such a danger. And if you're the only person in your life that's dealing with your sin or that you've left the responsibility to deal with your sin, that's like leaving the fox to guard the hen house. That's like telling your teenage son, Hey, son, I just made these chocolate chip cookies. Can you please keep anyone else from the house from eating them? How long is that going to take for there ain't no cookies left? And that's what it's like if you're the only one dealing with your sin. Because Hebrews 3 says, Others need to be involved in your life to encourage and exhort you so that the sin won't harden you from seeing it anymore. They must be involved because, frankly... You're not the most reliable person to deal with your own sin. Romans 15, 14 says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Here Paul is is calling believers to work on their own lives to be in such a place that they are coming alongside and admonishing or instructing one another, warning one another if if a person's going down a path towards sin that admonition can come in the form of a form of a rebuke an exhortation or an appeal a pleading a warning and again god expects all of us to warn a person if we see them going down the wrong path we're not supposed to sit by and say well it's it's none of my business that's kind of personal i i don't i'm not going to bring anything up with them we're not supposed to think you know well i'm not an elder i'm not a counselor i'm not a church leader 
I am not in a place to interfere. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brother Kempis spoke on that last month. A wonderful message that he gave there. Passages, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, what? Restore. That is to mend, to fix such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We have a responsibility to walk by the Spirit so that when a person is, is caught in sin, when a person is getting beat up and thrashed by that sin, that we come alongside and restore men, fix that person, help them. We're to lovingly bear their burdens. We're to be so connected and involved with one another's lives that we're in a position to do such a thing. Because sin... As Peter said, it wages war against our souls. Sin is not a pacifist. It doesn't sit by. It actively attacks our own soul. Our flesh is the great enemy. And at times, all of us, every single one of us, get wounded on the battlefield. And we need somebody else to come in and carry us off. And sometimes we need someone else to come in and say, Hey, man, you've been shot. You're stuck in a sin. You've been wounded. Let me help you, brother. Let me help you, sister. We see that in Matthew 18, 15, where Jesus says, If a brother, your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Here Jesus tells us that if there is a person, a brother or sister in Christ that is caught in a sin or what looks to be a sin, we're to go up to them and say, Man, you're wounded. You're on the battlefield. You've been shot. Let me help you. And you point out that sin. If it's a pattern of sin or perhaps a significant sin in their life, Jesus says here, you have to go. If your brother sins, if you're calling yourself a believer, a follower of our Lord Jesus Christ, then you have a responsibility to go. Because remember, sin is deceitful. Sin is alluring. And sometimes it takes somebody else to call it to our attention, doesn't it? And it's so important to do this because sin by its very nature loves to hide. It, it, it loves to be in the darkness. It's like mold in the dark that grows. It gains power in the darkness. It doesn't want to be exposed. And it'll do whatever it can to keep that exposure. You remember David, right? You remember what he did? He committed adultery with Bathsheba, sinned against Uriah, and sinned against his wife, And then what did he do? Did he confess it right away? No, he tried to cover it up. Tried to hide it. Tried to get Uriah to go and sleep with her because she had become pregnant. And when that didn't work, he he murders Uriah. He murders him. David, who was a man after God's own heart, killed another man so he could have his wife. You think sin is not powerful and deceitful? Wake up. Sin is a terrible enemy. Terrible enemy. And these passages tell us clearly God expects all of us to come alongside one another in this battle against sin. And we must be accountable to each other on a regular basis because sin happens on a regular basis. And my question to you this morning is simply, how accountable are you? Barna Research did a survey in 2010. 
where they asked this question. Does the church that you attend most often do anything specific to hold you personally accountable for integrating your faith into your daily life? I guess that's a politically correct way of saying, do they help you out all with the sin or struggles in your life? Of those who identified themselves as Christians who regularly attended church, only 5% answered yes. Only 5% said their church did anything to keep them accountable to their profession of faith. One in 20. Brothers and sisters, that is a tragedy. Are there 19 out of 20 churches that just think sin isn't that big a deal? It's a personal thing. Don't worry about it. Wow. To have less than 1 in 20 people who name the name of Christ say that there was anything going on in their church to help them be accountable to their faith, let alone helping them deal with their sin. No wonder the church is in the present state it's in. No wonder the church often looks more like the world than it does Jesus. Let us not fail to present Christ with a pure bride, a lovely bride, a bride worthy of him. Because it's all about that. In fact, Jesus, he is so concerned with the purity of his church. In fact, do you know who's the first person in the New Testament that talks about our mutual accountability to one another in regards to our sin? Do you know who it is? First one to bring it up. Sunday school answer, Jesus. Jesus. Matthew 18. Turn there with me, if you will. Matthew 18. Jesus is the first one to talk about this, to give instruction. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives a process that, uh, and how to deal with one another's sin, a process that many refer to as church discipline. And sadly, there seem to be few that are following what Jesus said to do. In fact, that same survey I mentioned earlier 1% of those who were surveyed said that there was any form of limiting or revoking church membership in their church when a person did not meet specific standards. It's not necessarily church discipline, but even any form of involvement in a person's life. One out of a hundred churches. But brothers and sisters, let's not think that we have it all together. That's the last thing I want you to take away from this morning. Hey, we practice church discipline, so we're fine. You know, we do seek to practice church discipline, but we have by no means arrived. Because when we talk about church discipline, we're not just talking about that public naming of somebody up front or or removing them from the church. It's much, much more than that. In fact, that should be a very rare event in church discipline. Church discipline should be happening all the time. And Jesus lays it out for us. And this morning, I want to talk about two purposes for church discipline so that we'd have an understanding of why. Why did Jesus give the instruction to do this? Because when we know the purpose, I think we're more motivated to carry it out. Ultimately, the purpose of church discipline is to bring honor and glory to Christ, right? To give him the pure bride that he so richly deserves. And there's two ways that we do that, two specific purposes that church discipline is for. It's for restoration to the body and for protection for the body. Let's look first at restoration to the body. Matthew 18, verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. 
But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses even to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Jesus provides us here with a clear path for dealing with sin in his body. And you know what? It's a gracious path. It is a loving path. It's a patient path because it is a path that helps us to know how to restore a sinning brother or sister to Christ and to his body. And he lays this path out for us in these very clear steps. Now, most consider verse 15 as the first step of the church discipline process, but actually it's the second one. The first step, Jesus mentions back on the, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. Go back to Matthew 7 for a minute. Actually, Matthew 7 is probably more, really, the first reference to church discipline, where Jesus addresses the first two steps. Matthew 7 is a text many are familiar with. It, it's that one that talks about the, the person who has a rather large piece of lumber sticking out of their ocular socket. Matthew 7. I'll be reading from verse 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log, the the plank, the, the roof truss in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold the logs in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now here we we see the first two steps, church discipline, the first two steps in dealing with sin. The second step is going to your brother. The first one is what? Before dealing with their sin, whose sin needs to be addressed? Our own. We're so good at that. Right? Our own sin. Because Jesus doesn't want some hypocritical, judgmental, condescending person going around pointing out everybody else's faults and sins. He wants someone who is, who is humble, who sees their own sin so that they could more clearly see the sin of another to help. So before approaching someone else about their sin, ask God to give you insight into your own. Ask someone who knows you well, a spouse or family member or someone who knows you in the church. Is there any area in your life that they can see of maybe sin or, or an issue that needs to be dealt with? Because when we remove that, that log, that, that piece of lumber sticking out of our own eye, then we can more clearly see, as Jesus says, the, the speck or the issue in our brother's eye. Now, many who don't like to be confronted with their sin often quote this first verse, right? Judge not, lest you be judged. But see, they don't often tell you what Jesus said in verse 5. Jesus didn't say, hey, so don't ever bother with a brother. If you say you see a speck, turn around, don't talk to him about it. Just deal with your own sin. No, Jesus said, hey, deal with your own sin so that you can deal with their sin. Help them with that speck. Specs are irritating and can cause damage. I've scratched my cornea because of a dust particle or a piece of sand, and it hurts. So Jesus wants us to deal with that sin in their life, but not to do it in a judgmental way, a self-righteous manner. He wants us to approach each other, and that's what takes us back to Matthew 18. So turn back there, and we'll see the second step is the first thing he mentions in Matthew 18, but that comes only after we've done our self-examination. 
Verse 15 shows us that when we approach a fellow believer, Jesus says that we're to do it in private. In private. Just the two of you. Not talk about it with anyone else. Right? Not going up to say, hey, hey, Mark, you know, Gordon's got this real struggle with, with uh, drinking. And, uh, you know, I've seen him doing it over and over, you know, and, and we start talking about it. That's not what Jesus says here. Don't go talking to other people about the sin. God's let you see the sin. You're the one that's supposed to go to that person in love and in private and talk to them about it. But we're so quick to talk about the sins and faults with others, with everybody else. But God wants you to go and you to do it with discretion. Now, there are some situations where you aren't sure if it's a sinful issue or, or you don't really know how to approach it or it's a difficult situation and you would like prayer. Then and only then you go to a more mature believer and talk to them about it. Don't even bring the other person's name up, though. Just say, you know, I've got this situation with a brother and I, I don't know how to deal with it. Can you help me? Then it would be acceptable. But even then show discretion and only with another mature believer. This isn't for gossip. And Jesus says that, that when you go to that person to confront them their, over their sin, he says, show them their fault. Show has the idea here of bring to light, to, to make known, to expose, to make clear. You're to make clear about what sin it is that you've observed. That means there needs to be chapter and verse. It can't be an opinion or a preference, but an actual violation of what the Lord has called us to do. And this is where maybe, if you're not sure, the advice of a more mature believer may be helpful. Now the question is, well, what types of sins should be confronted and how often should I confront? For any time a person sins, is there any criteria which to determine when I should go? Well, our first reaction when someone has sinned, particularly if it's a sin against us, some translations have against you here, if anyone sins against you, our first reaction needs to be to overlook Our first reaction needs to be what Proverbs 10 describes as covering all transgressions. And we need to especially have that response in our homes. Because, you know, we see lots of sin in our homes. Our first response needs to be to to overlook. But there are times, maybe if the sin continues to be repeated, or if it's an especially egregious or dangerous or, or harmful sin... Or perhaps it's, it happens and it's just you're struggling, you can't get through it, maybe particularly if it's against you. and you just, I, I'm struggling with bitterness here. I need to go talk to this person. That would be the time to approach them. And how are we to approach them, brothers and sisters? Hey, Ken, you big sinner. You know what I saw you doing? Yeah, yeah, right? No. Gently, humbly. Nobody's going to sit in the first rows anymore. I just realized that. <laughs> But I can see you. I can see you up there, Benny. So any of you in the in the in the upstairs, I can see, right? But we go to them in gentleness, in humility, in patience, right? How would you want to be approached? You'd want that same approach to you, right? Bring up the other person's sin in a way you would want someone to bring up yours to you, right? Don't come to them with the pointing finger or, or the scowl. The harsh tone. A lot of people think church discipline's all about that. Or whenever someone's in trouble, you need, ah, you, you screwed up, you sinner. No. Oh, I'm so glad Jesus doesn't do it that way. Now, there are times where a stronger response is necessary. But at this point in time, 
Come in gentleness, in private, in humility. Be available to them. Be affirming. Tell your concern for them. I mean, if you come to a person and say, Hey, brother, I I noticed this. I I may have not seen it right, but this is what it looked like to me. And I want to let you know about it. Ask questions rather than just assuming you know all the circumstances and know their heart and their motives. Take them to the Word and invite them to say, You know what? And if you see anything in my life, come talk to me. Be open and transparent. You know what? If we have an attitude that's truly concerned for the souls of one another and is truly concerned to to bring restoration to that sinning brother or sister, that's going to come out as you talk to them and they will be more likely to respond favorably to that. You'll be more likely to win your brother or sister. And you think about this. I mean, this sounds like such a scary and invasive process, but it is really a privilege because you know what? God wants to use us in this process. And there may be somebody in this room, if you're struggling with a sin, and God's waiting and wanting that specific person to talk to you. And that's the key that will unlock dealing with this struggle with sin. To me, it's just amazing that we're part of His wonderful plan to help each other become conformed to the image of Christ. What a privilege that is. What an honor. But not everybody responds well when they're first told of their sin, right? I don't know if you probably don't identify with that. But there are other people that uh, when you tell them about their sin uh, may not respond in the way you'd hoped. But you know what? If that happens, don't just jump to the next step. Give them some time and go back and talk to them again. Be gracious. Sometimes people just need to hear it and chew on it for a little bit. Now, don't wait forever. But, but give them a little time and then try to get together again. Pray for them in the meantime. Now, if that next attempt doesn't go very well and you realize they're just entrenched in this, they're telling you, hey, there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing, or, yeah, I know it's a sin, but I don't care. Well, Jesus then tells us in verse 16, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Jesus says, well, now you need to get others involved, but only one or two. Only one or two. Again, Christ wants to keep this as discreet as possible for as long as possible in hopes of winning that brother or sister back. And these others that you involve are to be witnesses, not of the person's sin necessarily, but of the person's refusal to repent. And... My recommendation is to find another person that that knows this individual, particularly find somebody who's a mature believer to be involved. This isn't where you're ganging up on somebody so that to force them by the force of numbers to repent, to get them to realize, hey, this is serious. This is serious. And we're all here to call you to repentance. Those one or two people that come with you aren't just there to be silent observers. Notice that Jesus said in the very next line, if he refuses to listen to them, So all two or three of you are to be involved in pleading with this person and calling this person to turn, calling them to change, to be restored to Christ. But even in this process, as you guys talk about it with one another, before you go to the person, again, do it with discretion. Don't be self-righteous about it. Don't gossip about it. It's not, hey, you know what this guy's doing? Let me tell you. There should be a real sobriety and somberness about this whole thing. That a person's caught, they're on the battlefield, and they're telling everybody else to go away while they lay there bleeding to death. 
So we need to, to keep that in mind and pray for that person. And then two or three of you go to them again in love and in gentleness and appeal to them. Call them to deal with this sin in their life. Tell them to repent. And if they don't listen to the two or three of you, again, I encourage them to be err on the side of grace. Maybe give them an opportunity. Come one other time. Say, hey, I can tell you're not at the point where you want to listen. I'd like to come and talk to you again. Okay, now, some situations, if the sin's serious enough, uh, don't do that. But, but generally speaking, just, again, err on the side of grace. But then Jesus says, if that person refuses to listen even to those two or three witnesses, now's the time you tell it to the church. And this is the point in time where an elder needs to be involved if, if one hasn't yet been already. We need to talk to them, let them know the situation that's going on so that uh, an elder, two or three elders, our typical practice is to send two or three guys to go and talk to that person. And sometimes in that step, when you have an elder knocking on your door, they know what's going on. And sometimes it actually stirs them enough to, to respond in repentance. But now that the elders are involved and they can determine at what point if this person still remains unrepentant to bring them before the church, to let you all know about them, to tell it to the church, as Jesus says. Now this is the step that many people see as harsh and unloving and mean-spirited. How can exposing someone in public be a restorative act? doesn't sound like it how can mentioning them to a large group of people lead them to repentance what gives the church the right to do that and we first need to remember something who's giving us this instruction this is christ that's pretty clear this isn't some obscure text that theologians argue about what people argue about is the application and because it's hard but it's very clear what jesus is saying here And Jesus wants it to be done. And this is how the Lord of the universe has determined the best approach to bring someone who's in unrepentant sin to bring them to repentance. And to remember that the church is a body and we're all affected by a person's sin. And so in a sense, if it gets to this point, all of us need to be involved in helping with that sin. And thirdly, there's just something about the weight of an entire church calling a person to repentance that God uses can be a powerful force. And when that person is announced, that is a time for all of you to spring into action. Every single one of you. All of you must pursue this person because you know what? At this point, we're on a rescue mission. Because think about what's happened to this point. If someone's name being named up here, what's been happening behind the scenes? They've had many, many admonitions to turn many people appealing to them to be restored to Christ. And they've even been told, hey, if you're not going to repent, we're going to need to let the church know. And they're still saying, I don't care. Usually what you guys are elders, what do we typically hear? Do what you got to do. It's very sad, very discouraging. The, the heart has become, become so hardened. And so God says, you need to bring a bigger hammer, the hammer of the whole church, to break the heart. And you, you must contact that person, all of you. It's not, now we're not at a point where just those that were first involved or the elders or those more mature. Every single person in the church needs to go after the straying sheep. 
Because Jesus said in the very next line, if he refuses to listen to the church, Jesus has an expectation that everyone who names the name of Christ and who's part of the local body, the local assembly, is going after his brother or sister. But remember when you do that? How are you to do that? Is it time now to be harsh? Now we're going to be stern and mean and self-righteous. No, you still go how? In love, gentleness, patience, humility. And you talk to them and do it privately. Don't send out a mass email. Don't put something on their wall in Facebook. Hey, you need to repent, man. Just type it in there. Let everybody see it. You know, that's happened before. Would you go into a restaurant if you saw them in there and then grab the intercom and say in front of everybody in the restaurant, hey, Joe Smith over there, he's a big sinner. He needs to repent. Joe, repent right now. Would you do that? What would the world see in that kind of action? That's not a very loving and kind way to approach it. And yet when you post on Facebook on their wall, that's the same thing. All you're doing is inviting the world to give unhelpful criticism. And what often happens is they'll encourage that sinning brother or sister to keep doing it. Hey, look at these self-righteous jerks you're around. Forget them. No, no, it needs to be private. The reason for this step is not for public humiliation, but it's so that the whole church about knows about it so the whole church can be involved. This person needs to receive hundreds of letters. Hundreds of phone calls and visits and emails and notes and and texts from every single one of us. You know, I love it. There have been times where I've been uh, involved in something like this and I call the person and their voicemail says, voice box full. I love that. Because that tells me people are calling. We need to do this because that person is in terrible danger. They are in danger. James 5.19 says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You're going to keep that guy from bleeding out on the battlefield. You're going to keep him from all the other things that will affect his life, all the other sins and, and distresses and consequences if you can turn him from what he's doing. I mean, what, what would you do if you're at a, say you're at one of these fellowship in the sun potlucks, right? We've been having this summer and, and you're there in the backyard, person has a pool, everybody's hanging out in fellowship, eating together, and you see a little toddler kind of waddle up to the edge of the pool and fall in. What would you do? Would you keep going on with your conversation? Ignore it? Would you think, oh, that's so-and-so's kid. Uh, that's their kid. They'll, it's their problem. They'll have to deal with it. Would you say, well, I just bought these shoes. I'm not going to get them wet. What would you do? You'd jump in after the kid to save his life. Wouldn't you? When we bring somebody up here and let, that, let you know about it, you know what we're telling you? A toddler's falling in the pool. Rescue him. Go after him. He's in danger. Please take this seriously. Because one day, that toddler may be you. And if there's still no repentance, that person refuses all the numerous attempts, doesn't listen to their voicemail or ignores it, doesn't open the letters or reads them and throws them away. 
Jesus says in verse 17, these sobering words, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, some take this to mean they're to be put out of the church and then simply treated as an unbeliever. But we need to understand that, remember, who is Jesus speaking to and what was their perception about what a Gentile tax collector was and how did they treat them in that day? Because the Jews of Jesus' day, they saw Gentiles as pagans not to be associated with at all. In fact, there was a law that restricted Jews from associating or visiting even the house of a Gentile. And tax collectors, boy, they were even lower on the list. They were the scum of the earth as far as the the Jew would be concerned because they sold out their country for money. They joined the, the Romans to collect and extract taxes from the people of Israel. They were seen as betrayers. They would not associate with them at all. Now, Christ is not condoning these attitudes. But what he is saying is that those who've remained in unrepentant sin, you need to treat them like you treat Gentiles and tax collectors. They are now outcasts. They are now to be shunned. No association with them. They're to be put out of the church. And that doesn't mean just the church building, the church premises. That means out of fellowship with the people. We aren't to socialize with them as we might somebody else. We're not to pursue or maintain any relationship with them. That means any venue of association needs to be cut off. They aren't part of an email chain that you might send out. They're no longer to be friends on Facebook. They're no longer invited to times of fellowship that you may have had with them previously. And this is not to be done harshly or rudely, but with deep sorrow. This is not a time where we gloat and kick people out and think good about it or think we're any better. They are caught and caught in such a way and hardened in such a way they're not turning from their sin. We need to have sorrow and pray for them and continue when we do see them to call them to repentance. And I know this makes it very difficult, particularly for those who might be in your family. Someone in your family has been church disciplined. That is especially hard. But you know what? We need to remember that our bond in Christ is much deeper than our bond in blood. The family, as wonderful as it is, is only temporary. Christ's family is eternal. Jesus said in Matthew twelve fifty, Whoever does the will of my Father is in heaven. He is my brother and sister and mother. Now, there are some situations where there's a family member involved and, and certain issues involved with that. Sometimes it would be good to have the elders in that situation I mean, to help provide guidance and wisdom. Some people might ask, well, what about the person who's been put out of the church? And then they later say, well, I'm not a believer. I never was a believer. So then should we simply treat them as we would an unbeliever, pursue a relationship with them for the purpose of the gospel, spend time with them? Well, simply put, no. No. Because they once called themselves a believer. They once made a commitment and a profession that they knew and loved the Lord Jesus Christ, that they're His child and His sheep. They committed to a local assembly, a local body, spent time in fellowship there to the point that everybody there was convinced they were a Christian, that they portrayed themselves that way. person that has made a profession of Jesus as their Lord. Jesus says, you need to treat that person not just as an unbeliever, but as a, a Gentile, a tax collector. They're an outcast. And again, I, 
I don't say this because we're all in the business of rejecting people and throwing them out. Not at all. And this is often abused in churches. And many people wonder, how could this be a restorative act? You're kicking them out? But I've seen many, many times the sting of that isolation, the the sting of of that shunning, uh, being cast into the world actually brings a person to their senses like the prodigal son in the pig pen. What am I doing here? That God in His grace will bring consequences in their life. And one of those is being cast out of the church. And that through that process, as they sit in the pig pen for a while and realize (laughs) and they repent. I've seen it so many times where people come back, come back. And that's what we want in the end, the restoration. In Paul, in 2 Corinthians 2, we don't have time to go there. It's a wonderful story about a person that talks about a person that was received back from church discipline. And Paul said, you know what? When that happens, affirm your love for them. Go overboard in welcoming them home and in, in displaying forgiveness and kindness and showing love. Now, these last two public steps are often the ones people associate with church discipline. But you know what? Hopefully, those are very rare. But church discipline is the entire process. All of the steps that were mentioned. We really need to be especially practicing those first two two steps of self-examination and then going one-on-one privately and helping one another with each of our sins. Because isn't it best to take measures ahead of time? Isn't it best to find ways to keep the toddler from the edge of the pool in the first place? And that's what those first two steps do. And it's for the purpose of restoration. That's the first purpose of church discipline. The second purpose is in 1 Corinthians 5. So turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 5. And that second purpose is for the protection of the body. For the protection of the body. Here in 1 Corinthians, we find the Corinthian church in a situation not unlike many churches today that show little effort in the way of dealing with sin in the body. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul lays out a situation and an issue that was going on among them. Beginning in verse 1, he says, It's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead. So that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who's committed, who has so committed this. As though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I wish you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So there was a man in the church who was in an ongoing immoral relationship with his stepmother. Probably the situation was she left her husband, his dad, to go shack up with the stepson. And Paul says at the very beginning it was actually or everywhere reported, meaning everybody in the church knew about it and did nothing but continue to allow this guy in this ongoing immoral relationship to continue in fellowship in the body. And Paul says they'd become arrogant, probably because they were proud of their tolerance. Oh, 
Aren't we a gracious and loving church? We don't judge and condemn people around here because we care. They, they wore it as a badge of honor. But Paul says, people, get your act together. Call a meeting, get together, and in the name of Jesus, put that guy out of the church. Put him out into Satan's realm, and hopefully he'll be brought to repentance. But Paul, if we kick this guy out, he's not going to hear the gospel as it's proclaimed every Sunday. If we kick him out, he's not going to see the example and testimony of other believers in the church. If we kick him out, he won't experience the grace of Christ. Paul's saying, this is the grace of Christ. Put him out of the church. And Paul had good reason for it. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually... I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a vile or a drunkard or a swindler. Not to even eat with such a one. See what he's saying here? This guy, again, who's an ongoing unrepentant sin. It's not that if one of these sins are committed, that's it. It's the idea of a person characterized by them, not willing to, to turn from them. And Paul says they need to not be in the body for the protection of the body. Because that person's sin will eventually affect everyone else, just like leaven or yeast. What does yeast do when it's put within the dough? Spreads out, right? Makes the dough rise. It spreads. That's what yeast does. And sin is like that. It spreads. It's like a disease that spreads eventually into the entire body. Fifth century monk John Cassian said, What is pure is corrupted much more quickly than what is corrupt is purified. And you know how this works, right? Got this guy living in this immoral relationship and everybody knows about it. There's another person that says, well, he can do that. There's no repercussions. What's the problem with me doing it? Or another person who says, well, you know, I'd never go check up with my stepmother. But, you know, pornography thing, I'll just keep going on with that. Clearly, it's not that big a deal. Or another person that says, well, I'm not into this immorality, but I can keep on drinking. Right? And sin after sin, it begins to spread. And eventually it gets into every nook and cranny in the church. No wonder the Corinthian church was so messed up. You know, if you look at all the epistles, guess which one had the most problems? These guys. I think it's the longest epistle. Paul got his hand sore in dealing with the issues going on in this body. And why do you think that was? Because they weren't dealing with this guy who was living with his stepmother in an immoral relationship and probably other sins going on as well. You know, we often can think of sin like in the church as like a, a drop of this dark liquid in a large tub of water. And we kind of think, well, that sin, you know, that this drop will just go into the bottom of the tub and it won't affect everything, anything else. It'll just sit there out of the way. But that's not what happens. 
It begins to spread. And as that drop spreads, it doesn't get more diluted. It gets more concentrated. And eventually the whole tub is just as dark as that original drop. Sin is like leaven. And notice here, like Jesus, Paul says, don't even associate with the guy. And he makes a distinction between the unbeliever and this unrepentant so-called brother. Right? He says, hey, people in the world, the unbelievers in the world, associate with them. They need to hear the gospel. They need to see it lived out in your life. But he says with this so-called brother, don't even sit down for a meal with them. Don't associate with them. They're to be left to Satan's domain. Again, it sounds harsh and very unchristian-like. But Jesus is saying that is exactly what they need to get their attention. And Jesus is jealous to keep his bride pure and protected from sin. And we see this protective aspect in regards to those who create division. Titus 3.9 says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Paul's telling Titus here, Hey, Titus, reject or avoid, have nothing to do with, put out the factious man, the, the person who is one who creates division, who likes to argue. He doesn't have a desire to submit to Scripture or to the leadership of the church. He's always picking fights, arguing about some doctrine or church practice or an issue that he doesn't agree with. He's not interested in the truth, but in pulling others to his own opinion. And Paul says, Titus, give the guy two admonitions, two warnings to stop, to stop being a source of division. And if he doesn't, you reject him, you put him out. Notice here, Paul doesn't encourage him to follow the Matthew 18 process, does he? This is church discipline on the fast track. Where Paul says, hey, you give him two warnings and then that's it. And the reason is because of the nature of the sin. The unity of the body is so important to, pres- to preserve that if someone comes in and is actively seeking to undermine that unity, and again, we're not talking about a person that has a disagreement but is willing to talk about it and work it through. We're talking about the person that has an agenda to create division, that won't listen when being admonished and warned to stop. That that person is a danger to the body. And we don't have a Matthew 18 process for them because if it gets long and protracted, what's going to happen? That individual will continue to influence more and more in the church and create a wider and wider division. We see the same fast-track response in the case of false teaching. Romans 16, 17. Paul says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. See, Paul's saying here, you're to watch out. You're to keep your eye out for those who are speaking contrary to what the fundamental doctrines of Scripture teach. Don't engage them in dialogue. Paul says here to turn away from them, to steer clear, to avoid them. What you need to do is you're talking to somebody and it's just obvious. You need to go immediately to an elder 
so that the elder can deal with it. And that elder, if he's following scripture, 2 Timothy 2.25, he'll come alongside and with gentleness seek to correct that individual. But if that individual does not listen to that gentle but direct instruction, then they're to be turned away from, they're to be put out. And we've done that many times here where somebody comes in and it's obvious. I had a conversation not long ago with somebody and they are here to eat sheep. And after talking with them and realizing they don't want to talk about it, they just want to purport their false teaching, they're asked to leave and not come back because they're a danger. If we had Matthew 18 process going on with that and encouraged all of you to go after this person, what do sheep? What happens when sheep go and hang out with wolves? What happens? You've seen the Nature Channel. Come on. They get eaten. Wolves are not to be dealt with in that way. Wolves are to be quickly removed. Praise the Lord, brother. So if you get a sense, come talk and grab an elder. Say, hey, this guy over here. Actually, it wasn't long ago. Another situation happened. They show up and they just want to spread poison. Again, these aren't people who are willing to dialogue and interact. These are folks... They have an agenda sent by the evil one to tear you away from the fold. Jesus wants us to remove anybody, not only who's spreading heresy, not only who is creating division actively, not only who is in unrepentant sin. Jesus wants to remove any of these for the protection of his bride. He wants a holy bride, a pure bride. And that's why Jesus himself invented this whole matter of church discipline. He's the one that came up with it. He's the one that commanded it. He's the one that endorsed it. And this is still his church, isn't it? This is still his body. He's the one that's still in charge, is he not? He's very clear here. He's the one that gets to choose his bride. We need to be committed to this. 19th century Baptist theologian John Dagg said, When discipline leaves the church, Christ leaves with it. And I think he said this because not only did Jesus initiate and give instruction as to this process, but you know what? He practices it. Revelation 2 and 3, when Jesus had a message for the Apostle John to deliver to the churches of his day, some of those churches got the first step of church discipline, where Jesus says, hey, this sin is going on in your body. You need to repent and turn from it. We know Acts 5. God, church, discipline, Ananias, and Sapphira permanently. And I don't say that to be funny. They lied to God's face and to the apostles and to the church. And because of that, they dropped dead on the spot right at the church's doorstep. God is serious about sin, beloved. And he's serious about it in his body. He's fiercely jealous for our purity. So much so that he's, he's willing to take people out if necessary. And he's given us this gracious process for, by which we're all involved to help one another, to be involved in each other's lives, to doing church discipline. Again, those first two steps so that we might be used to help restore a sinning brother or sister to Christ. And again, I encourage all of us need to be involved in this Because there may be some here that are caught in a sin and and God wants you specifically to be the one that He's going to use to help them out. Jesus wants all 
his sheep to be restored to him in the body if they're in sin, and he wants the body to be protected. So please bow your heads with me for a moment in prayer. I want you to meditate on a few things. Because there may be some here currently engaged in an ongoing sin, and nobody around you knows it. Confess it now to the Lord, and then confess it to someone else here. You're playing with fire. Put it out now. There may be some here that that you're realizing, you know what, I'm just not involved enough in others' lives to help them with their battle with sin, or they with mine. Resolve now before the Lord to get more connected with others here in the body so that that can be going on in your life. Some of you may know a brother or a sister right now that's struggling with a sin and you've not yet spoken to them about it. And God's put it on your heart to go talk to them. Or if you know about it and you're not moved to do so, then ask the Lord to help you. Maybe even bring it up today. And for all of us, all of us, let's spend a moment and ask the Lord to help us be committed to doing church discipline all the time out of love for Him and for one another because faithful indeed are the wounds of a friend. Lord, I would ask that You would make us, Lord, a a loving church, a church that cares so much we're willing to take risks and approach one another about our sin. And Lord, help us to do that in such a way that is honoring to you, that recognizes we too can easily be caught. And Lord, that we would never be condemning or self-righteous, but, but Lord, helpful coming alongside one another. Let us, Lord, be so active in doing that that we would never get to the point where someone's fallen into the pool and, Lord, that they refuse to repent. I would ask, Lord, that you would cause us to be one body. Lord, you've made us that way. Let us live it out. Lord, especially in this area of sin, for we know, Lord, it is so dangerous, and we want to be a pure bride for you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, maybe the Lord has, has put something on your heart, and I would encourage you to, you know, this isn't something that just should happen this morning where we church discipline once in a while, but an ongoing thing. I would just ask you to make this part of your prayer this week and just ask God to help move you in this direction so that we'd be a church that is fulfilling and and that we're all properly working parts. So may the Lord uh, bless your week uh, this week and praise Him for His goodness to us. You're dismissed.